0: Well, good morning. Why don't we get to get started? So I uh, appreciate everybody finding their way here for all the, the construction detours, etc. We're really delighted from the Section of Endocrinology to welcome Stephen Coca today, who's going to give us a, uh, a talk about an important topic in diabetes care, microalbuminuria. And I know all the primary care doctors also have to. Face this. And he's going to tie this in with some interesting research that he's, uh, he's been doing. So Stephen Koch is an assistant professor of nephrology at Yale Medical School, which just shows how broad-minded we are in endocrinology that we can invite <laughs> uh, He got his bachelor's from University of Connecticut in 1996. And he got a uh, doctorate of osteopathy uh, at New England College of Osteopathic Medicine in 2001. He did his internship and residency at Yale. Uh, New Haven Hospital until 2004, and then did his fellowship in nephrology there until 2008. He's been an instructor and then an assistant professor uh, at Yale since 2009, and actually just was letting me know he'll be moving on to Mount Sinai where he'll be an associate professor uh, very soon, actually. Um, he also managed, to, with all of this, to find time to get a master's in epidemiology uh, in 2009 at the Yale Graduate School, so he's certainly got a lot of a lot of eggs in the the basket here. Um, He's had several awards, uh, which I'm not going to go through in detail. But he has had a K23 from the NIH, a career development award, which we all know those are not easy to get. And he's been the uh, principal investigator on several NIH-funded grants. He also attends at three different uh, locations at Yale, at the Yale New Haven Hospital, at the VA there, and also in the outpatient setting. So um, for those of you who like past history, we actually have a triple threat here. And uh, his interest is actually in the markers of diabetic uh, kidney injury, including microalbuminuria, which he's going to talk about today. He's uh, also participated in a number of studies of acute kidney injury. He's very well published. He has 57 peer-reviewed articles, 13 review articles, several editorials and book chapters. So it's a real pleasure to welcome him, and hopefully he'll educate us on uh, microalbuminuria. Thank you, Dr. Cohn.
1: Thank you for, for that introduction. Uh, it's a pleasure to be up here at Dartmouth. This is my first time, and looks like a beautiful place. And I hope you enjoy my talk. And, and feel free to uh, raise your hand and interrupt and ask questions. I'd rather have it be a little more interactive, especially in this intimate uh, forum. Oh, sorry. Mood, mood lighting. <laughs> don't hope they don't fall asleep now. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about. Uh, nephropathy in patients with uh, type two diabetes. And I'll present a case that 2004 was the start of my fellowship and this was a a, a classic uh, management that we employed for patients with this clinical scenario. This was a 54 year old type two diabetic with a a poorly controlled hemoglobin A1C, hypertension, GFR at that time was 52 uh, milliliters per minute and had macroalbuminuria at 420 micrograms per milligram. And we, we were seeing the patient and we recommended, as you would expect, aggressive control with an angiotensin receptor blocker and also to improve that glycemic control and get, get tight control to prevent progression. Two years later, patient is still worsening. Uh, GFR is, is is declining, creatinine is up to 2.4, and protein-to-creatinine ratio is now three, so almost nephrotic range proteinuria. So in our infinite wisdom, we wanted to employ dual RAS blockade and added ACE inhibitor to that, and we'll talk about some of the data for that but we thought this would slow, decrease the proteinuria and slow the progression. And also, um, aggressively targeting uh, anemia and trying to get that hemoglobin up to near normal ranges with uh, one of the ESAs, Darbukh Wheaton. And um, two years later, GFR declining now and, and and patient was starting on dialysis to avoid starting when he was malnourished um, at a GFR of 15. Now I'm not gonna focus on these last two topics which were uh, also fallacies along with some of the other things we implemented um, because in the interest of time, but as you know the story with the ESAs, we were very wrong in trying to go for higher targets and uh, also recent data has shown waiting till GFR goes down to five to seven is, 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 is causes no adverse effects and improves um, keeps people off dialysis longer without adversely affecting mortality. So, uh, an interest in armamentarium that has been completely uh, debunked. So, um, I'll talk about diabetic and as a public health problem. Um, Talk about the impact of glycemic control and, and RAS inhibition to slow progression. I'll talk about whether we can improve risk stratification and facilitate enrollment into trials with novel biomarkers in addition just to microalbumin. And at the end, I'll talk about a a novel agent that may have some efficacy and should be safe uh, to treat this condition. This is uh, data from the USRDS showing diabetes, as you know, especially type 2 diabetes, is the leading cause of end-stage renal disease in the United States, um, more so than any other thing and and really the crux of our problem uh, dealing with these patients. this is data from NHANES showing that in the, in the three time periods of NHANES, the use of glucose-lowering medications, renin-angiotensin inhibitors, and lipid-lowering medications has increased over time. So is that a good thing? Is, is the aggressiveness translating into uh, better renal outcomes? Well, from that same publication from NHANES, they, there was commensurate increases in all diabetic kidney disease, albuminuria alone, impaired GFR, alone or the combination. So it seems that these medicines are being applied to catch up to the, to the uh, increasing burden of diabetes and nephropathy. So th- the first thing that we, you know, we discussed on that case was glycemic control, and, and it's a no-brainer that when you look at epidemiologic studies, your level of glycemic control is almost linearly, linearly related to your risk for chronic kidney disease. The higher hemoglobin A1C, the greater your risk for CKD, and this is from observational data. But the real question is, can you? what is the impact of intervening on, on glycemic control, and do you improve outcomes? So this is one of the trials that got me fired up, uh, the advanced trial, which is over 10,000 patients uh, with type 2 diabetes, randomized to intensive glycemic control versus uh, standard control. And was this a positive trial? The conclusions published in New England journals essentially spun it to be positive because lowering the hemoglobin A1c less to less than 6.5 yielded a 10% reduction in the combined outcome of major macrovascular and microvascular events. With the corollary that primarily is a consequence of a 21% relative reduction in nephropathy. So it was spun as positive based on that, but if you actually look at the data that drove it, here's your combined endpoint, here's a 10% risk reduction, Here's the macrovascular events, MI and stroke, which is what matters to patients, right? Absolutely no difference in these macrovascular events. And the microvascular events, it was only newer worsening nephropathy. Here's a 21% reduction, and there was a, a non significant trend for retinopathy. And there was a trend towards increased hospitalization uh, with the intensive glycemic control. Now, if you look further, varied in the results, The nephropathy endpoint was development of macroalbuminuria or doubling of serum creatinine. Macroalbuminuria was reduced, relative risk was 0.7 and a 1.2% absolute risk reduction, but you can see there was no difference in the doubling of creatinine. So really, in essence, all they got was a reduction in in macroalbuminuria, and they spun this whole trial that combined major macro and microvascular outcomes as positive. The Accord trial, which was published contemporaneously, another huge study over 10,000 patients looking at type two diabetics, randomizing them to intensive glycemic control, showed essentially the same thing. Less micro and macroalbuminuria in the the aggressive control group, but when you look at the other important clinical renal endpoints like dialysis, doubling creatinine, or these uh, composite uh, nephropathy endpoints, absolutely no difference. And as I wrote the, the, uh, the grant for the that I'll talk about where we're looking at multiple biomarkers, uh, we, we of course had to do the background and this was the systematic review that we ended up getting published looking at the clinical renal endpoints and to show you the dissociation of, of the surrogate endpoint of albuminuria with the true clinical outcomes. Um, and so these were seven trials that looked at aggressive glycemic control in the outpatient setting with type 2 diabetes versus standard control. You can see you get about a, six, a 14% reduction in microalbuminuria, a 26% reduction in macroalbuminuria, but doubling creatinine was was completely null. There was a trend towards a reduction in eSRD, but it, it crossed one. And death from renal disease, however you want to Mercury, Lee you want to define that, was was completely not different. So the eternal optimist will say, well, it looks like you're trending towards a benefit in end-stage renal disease, which is of course clinically important, but the pessimist would also point out this is a very small absolute risk reduction. You're going from 1.5% cumulative incidence to 1.1% for a .4 absolute risk reduction, and a number needed to treat of 250, which is somewhat high, especially when you consider that, this is from a separate meta-analysis, but showing that the risk of hospitalization from severe hypoglycemia was doubled in these aggressive glycemic control trials. <coughs> and if you also consider that it did not reduce cardiovascular disease mortality or all-cause mortality at all, completely null, when you could pool these large uh, trials. And if you look at the individual trial of cord where there was a 22% increased risk for death with the intensive glycemic control. So you'd have to be a very brave, nephrocentric, biased person to say, well, I'm gonna continue the aggressive glycemic control just for that small, that number needed to treat of 250 to prevent ESRD over, that was, uh, with a median follow-up of all the trials over five years, so uh, tough tough to uh, justify that. And because of data, especially from Accord, advance in VADT, which are the more modern glycemic control trials. The previous guidelines that uh, were published for uh, glycemic control in kidney disease, which used to say that all patients should be controlled to less than seven, irrespective of the presence or absence of CKD, they were changed to say, to not treat patients uh, less than seven who are at risk for hypoglycemia or have advanced <laughs> CKD, and it could be extended to above seven in patients with comorbidities or limited life expectancy, and most of the patients, especially with uh, stage three B and stage four CKD, of course have multiple comorbidities. And the uh, the, the recent Department of Defense guidelines on glycemic control also uh, relaxed their standards. And you can see here, this is probably where most of our CKD patients fit in: five to 15 years of life expectancy. Now putting the target to less than 8% or even less than 9% in those with advanced microvascular complications. So becoming a lot more lenient due to the fact that the data were not suggesting that driving down to these targets of hemoglobin less than 6.5 or less than 6 was really doing any benefit for the patients except for these tiny effect sizes on on, on surrogate outcome like albuminuria, which, which a patient won't even recognize. So that's the glycemic control story in a nutshell. Um, what about renin and angiotensin inhibition uh, in these patients? I mean, this is clearly a standard of care and, and our primary thing that we do. Um, are we improving outcomes for them? Um, you know, we know that th- we reduce blood pressure with RAS inhibition, decrease intraglomerular hypertension by relaxing the fen arterial, and potentially you're getting antifibrotic effects from all the pluripotent effects of RAS inhibition on the, on the tubular interstitium and TGF-beta, et cetera. So is it really the panacea that we expect it to be? Well, if you go back to the original publications, this was 2001, this is my intern year, and there were, there were companion articles in New England Journal. This is from Barry Brenner at Harvard, leading the Renal trial, which was Losartan, the ARB versus placebo in patients with macroalbuminuria and type 2 diabetes. And yes, I have reduced progression, because that was the conclusion. But there was a 16% risk reduction with a p-value of 0.02, but as a simple person, you can see those two cumulative incidence curves are essentially going up at a 45 degree angle, whether you're on the ARB or placebo. And if I was a patient looking at that, I would not be too optimistic. This is not a big effect size. Same issue, companion article, Ed Lewis and colleagues from the IDNT trial, this was the Urbisart and diabetic nephropathy trial. This was three arms comparing Urbisart and ARB versus uh, uh, dihydrocalcin blocker, amlodipine versus placebo. And again, yeah, they got a, a 19% risk reduction in the composite endpoint of doubling creatinine or ESRD. You can see the confidence interval almost crosses one. Again, as a simple person, <laughs> patients in all three harms of those trials are are, are, are are headed toward that composite endpoint I like to tell people that if these were three stocks in your portfolio Apple Pfizer IBM you'd be thrilled about the performance of all three <laughs> you wouldn't be saying oh I wish I switched out of Apple and got into this that's that's great but these, these are bad outcomes and, and, and this is essentially uh, a, a death march toward the, the, the end stage renal disease endpoint um, no matter which drug you're on. So we're not getting the effect sizes that people presume we're getting. I love to, to pimp the fellows on what how much we'll reduce improving outcomes with RAS inhibition. And that's, if you look at it as a continuous endpoint, this is the difference in GFR decline between the ARB and placebo arms in these two landmark trials that we've based all our consensus guidelines to treat all patients with type, type two diabetes and nephropathy with ARBs. you are only getting at best a one milliliter per minute per year difference with treatment. So there is a lot of room to go to get people to bring their curves down into this area. This is all, it, these are, this is a too steep an angle no matter which arm people are in. Well, back then, especially during my fellowship, the, the, the sexy paradigm was dual RAS blockade. Why, because if you're on ACE inhibitor, you increase bradykinin levels, and bradykinin is vasodilatory, antifibrotic, and does a lot of good things. But people also argued, oh, but you want to directly block the angiotensin II receptor, because there's kinase pathways of angiotensin II formation, which are independent of ACE and so you wanna especially use tissue aces and block these these pathways to decrease the angiotensin two formation. And all of this with the hope of decreasing uh, fibrosis, not only in the kidney, but also the heart. Um, But uh, I'm focusing mostly on the kidney here. And we were doing this primarily because of this one study. This was a cooperate trial. I don't know if anyone remembers it. It was published in the Lancet. They compared, Losarin ARV versus trandolopil versus the combination ACRV, and they got a, a halving of proteinuria with the combination, and they got these ugly survival curves because of small numbers. But this was our only trial that showed some kind of clinical renal endpoint besides proteinuria with a doubling, ace ACRV was slightly lower with the combination group. Now, the caveat being that this was IgA nephropathy in Japan and not diabetic nephropathy, but people love to do things because that's our inclination as physicians to do more. Well, lo and behold, there are several letters to the editor that occurred over the subsequent years and eventually the the data was found to be fraudulent and the study was retracted, retracted six years later from The Lancet. But people still want to do something and so we, Nephrologists citing proteinuria as its as as a supreme surrogate of all badness said, well, we're still getting reductions in in proteinuria when you combine ACE or ARB when you add it to each other. So we know proteinuria is associated with with poor outcomes. Let's uh, continue it because these are observational data that show the greater the amount of your proteinuria. Here you have the three categories of normal, micro, macroalbuminuria, or if you uh, put it into more um, uh, stratification. You see this nice dose response relationship between proteinuria and GFR decline. These are observational data. What happens in trials? That's what matters. What are you gonna end up doing for the patient? Well, target came out in 2008 and um, this was primarily a cardiovascular trial, 25,000 patients, it wasn't a primary renal trial, but this is where we started getting signals that we may be doing that this dual RAS blockade was not always cracked up to be. Um, And so yes, there was reductions in in albuminuria with the dual RAS blockade. But what happened was, for doubling creatinine dialysis or death, actually the combination therapy was slightly worse. And no matter which subgroup you looked at, whether diabetic or non-diabetic, overt nephropathy or not, microalbuminuria or macroalbuminuria or not, or GFR less than 60 or not, in all situations, it favored monotherapy with the ACE versus the combination. Absolutely no benefit of adding the ARB to the ACE. But um, people say, well, it wasn't a primary renal trial. It was, it was cardiovascular trial. So mm-hmm. still looking for things. So people say, let's block the R in the RAS. Let's block renin inciting the whole pathway. So Novartis developed um, Aliscarin, which is direct renin inhibitor. And they did this phase two trial, just looking at our wonderful surrogate of of albuminuria. And in in 600 patients, the combination of the direct renin inhibitor plus the ARB reduced uh, the the mean albumin to creatinine ratio by 20%. Great, right? How many of you would go on to the monster trial after that? They did. They went to 8,000 <laughs> patients. The altitude trial, which you may have read in the New England Journal a couple years ago now, and you can see that the composite outcome, which was several cardiovascular endpoints along with ESRD and dull and was absolutely not better with, the, with uh, adding a renin inhibitor to the ARB, and in fact, trended towards worse, almost statistically significant, worse, and the renal outcome was absolutely null, no difference. And of course, there was more hyperkalemia um, with the combination dual-ras blockade. Well, still happening, and this was going on at the VA, including our site, the Nephron-D trial. This was um, type 2 diabetes adding ACE to ARB. And yes, uh, combination therapy reduced albuminuria, right? So. I think you guys know where I'm headed with this. <laughs> Absolutely no difference in CKD progression or composite cardiovascular outcomes with the dual RAS blockade arms. So now we've got three trials telling us <laughs> dual RAS blockade did not add anything despite all that fancy pathophysiology that would suggest there would be a benefit. So this is my simple uh, three bears analogy of you gotta get it just right. I mean, obviously if you have no RAS inhibition, they're gonna be at high cardiovascular risk. To give a lot of RAS inhibition, we knew a priori that you increase the risk for hypokalemia and hypotension, but we thought you'd try to balance that risk with a trade-off of improving cardiovascular and renal risk, but instead, for whatever reason, these did not, Improve cardiovascular renal risk, and they put people at risk potentially. So you've got to just find the sweet spot. So it's currently monotherapy with an ACE or ARB for these patients with nephropathy. Question? Yes. Go back a slide. Sure. So how do you?
2: Are you? Uh, how hard and convincing is the data that you can predict cardiovascular and renal risk in a, di, in a type 2 diabetic? Pre- that, that is, if you look at all your type 2 diabetic yep. patients, can you predict the poor the people that are going to progress versus
1: the people that are not going to progress? For nephropathy? Yeah. That's what I'm gonna talk about next. Ah, good, thank you. Exactly. So, uh, lessons learned from the first 25 minutes or so. There's a lot of room to improve outcomes that I showed you. That we, those patients are progressing too rapidly. We need better surrogates to determine, uh, because Albumin, for all, you know, it's recommended to measure it every year, and we all use it as our number one predictor. But uh, dissociated from the hard outcomes in the TREASON trial, so we need to target interventions appropriately to those that will progress, and thus we need better surrogates. Because, you know, this is the paradigm of type 2 diabetes. Not everybody um, progresses, some stay in microalbuminuria, some regress, and you really want to identify this group and give them the most aggressive therapy, whether it's with zul like I don't know, or other novel agents that are coming out. I'll mention baroxolone um, a little later, a, a, a new agent, antifibrotic agent that everybody was excited about. Also failed, but um, whatever, <laughs> whatever comes down the pike, there may be something, but you wanna apply it to those who progress. There's no point treating people who are gonna stay here, you're just gonna dilute, you're gonna need, need to increase your sample size and dilute your effect size to treat a non-progressor. Now, one of the problems is that, you know, type two diabetes is not as classic as type one. In type two, People who have done biopsy uh, studies have shown there's a, there's a whole range of, uh, of lesions and you can have normal and near normal structure and, and about 45% of those have some proteinuria. You can have the typical Kimmelstein-Wilson nodules like you see type one and there, nearly everyone's gonna be albuminuric. But there's also a, a good proportion, at least a third that have these atypical patterns of injury and who have some degree of proteinuria but have primarily tubular interstitial Findings and not the classic glomerular lesions. So our translational research group we had focused mostly on acute kidney injury, but we're realizing a lot of these biomarkers um, have potential in chronic kidney disease as it's a chronic injury model. And um, you may have heard of some of these, but there's there's proximal tubular injury markers like interleukin 18 and kidney injury molecule one. Um, NGAL has been a very widely published one, neutrophil gelatinase associated lipocalin, and um, of course other markers of of fibrosis like TGF-beta and other uh, recent one that we've been studying, YKL40, which I don't have that slide. So this is a simple paradigm, you know, changing creatinine is just a functional marker that's a surrogate for GFR, um, but we're essentially trying to find these injury markers to give us the holy grail of the kidney troponin. It, you know, Because both in the acute setting where um, we diagnose AKI still with creatinine, we, obviously cardiology has been revolutionized with measuring troponin in the acute setting, you now have a diagnosis of myocardial injury and necrosis much quicker than if you waited for a drop in ejection fraction, which is the functional process that follows the injury. So we're hoping both in the acute and chronic setting, some of these injury biomarkers will forecast the functional declines that are to follow. Um, And here's looking, this is a type one diabetic schematic but, um, and and type two does vary more but this is just to clean it up a little. This is where you'd hope to utilize some of those injury biomarkers to pick up people when they're in this incipient diabetic nephropathy phase before they really have overt diabetic nephropathy and progress. and another reason that we need these markers is this was a, a, a transplant study but they did 100, it was 119 patients who got kidney and pancreas transplants and they did protocol biopsies um, in these patients and I just wanted to show you how much interstitial fibrosis and tubular atrophy was present in these, in these patients. In the meantime, the creatinine uh, does not, look at this, over six to 12 years, it only increased by less than 0.2 from, from the post-transplant So you'd say, oh yeah, your your allograft is fine, but there's a lot of underlying uh, structural injury that's occurring um, and we presume this to be in in, um, a lot of uh, chronic kidney disorders, um, including uh, post-transplant. You guys can see this, this was a study that actually did biopsies on a a lot of diabetes showing that when you compare the tubular interstitial biopsy findings, interstitial fibrosis and tubular atrophy, Versus the glomerular findings, it's it's the tubular interstitial findings that drive the risk uh, for progression of CKD more so than the glomerular lesions. And we know this is the this is the final common pathway of all CKD: tubular interstitial fibrosis, right? So um, the NIH put out this program announcement to to to. Um, to use their bank samples from Accord, blood and urine, to examine associations between biomarkers, treatment strategies, and various clinical outcomes. I thought it was interesting because the trial was essentially completely negative. Um, But they had all these samples sitting around, so I applied and and, and got funded uh, in September of 2012. And this was our our broad schema. We wanted to, since Accord, everybody had pretty much normal GFR baseline and a small proportion of microalbuminuria, it gave us the opportunity to see if we could measure various aspects of, uh, of kidney uh, injury and inflammation and uh, to pick up their risk for progression. So we're measuring a host of tubular injury markers, um, a, a host of, of inflammation and fibrosis markers, both in the blood and the urine, and some oxidative stress markers. And hopefully using this multi biomarker um, Three-dimensional look at the kidney to try to hone in on who is going go to go uh, progress the most um, with with type 2 diabetes. This was some preliminary data we had showing that these these markers uh, have have decent correlation with uh, GFR. This is endothelin-1, TGF-beta, NGAL, and and, and monocyte chemoattractant protein-1 showing uh, s- slightly stronger uh, negative correlations with um, with GFR and and then albumin. This is small cross-sectional data. These are data from other cohorts showing how you can employ these biomarkers in in the chronic setting. Urine N-gal levels greater than 231. This was risk for progression to ESRD. You can see very, very big uh, risk stratification there. This was kidney injury molecule one in post-transplant recipients and tertiles. You can see the risk for graft failure. uh, Nicely risk stratified when you put them in those three tertiles. Liver fatty acid binding protein has also been a relatively hot biomarker. These associated with different stage, higher levels with uh, you know worse phenotypic features of diabetic nephropathy. And the most impressive one, this one's from the Jocelyn Clinic, this is uh, serum TNF receptor one levels. Um, and they had 12 year follow-up, these patients all had no clinical renal disease at the outset, and you can see, if you're in the fourth quartile of TNF receptor one, um, you had, after 12 years, you had nearly 80% risk for end-stage renal disease if you had proteinuria as well. And if you had no proteinuria baseline, you still had about a 30% risk versus a less than 5% risk in the bottom three tertiles. And they adjusted for a whole host of factors, and they had adjusted hazard ratios, whether they were non proteinuric or proteinuric, of seven for being in the top quartile of TNF receptor one. That is impressive, that's an impressive effect size Uh, for a biomarker in in any setting. Um, So very, very strong predictor. And there have now been um, a few recent publications also confirming its its strong prognostic role. So this is the way we set up the the grant we did. Accord was 10,251 patients, but um, they had blood on about 2,500 blood and urine on, on 2500 baseline and 24 month samples. So we did nested case control, 362 developed CKD which is a, a 50% decline in GFR um, from baseline and we matched 362, uh, we did not develop it, we matched them on age GFR, albuminuria and blood pressure and we had these matching criteria. And essentially we wanna take, for A1 we wanna take these serum and urinary markers at baseline and see which ones are providing the most differentiation for those that are gonna develop CKD versus not. And we of course have a host of, of comorbidities and physiologic and, and uh, variables and medications as well that we can adjust for in these models to, to see what the independent predictive effect of the biomarkers are. Um, well, this was our, the the based on characteristics for the case control, you can see uh, the mean arterial pressure, 95, about the same. GFR is excellent, 85 in both at the outset. And um, both cases and controls, even although slightly higher, but they're less than the microalbuminuric level, they're less than 30. So they really have no clinical renal disease at the outcome, and um, so 362 develop it, and including 84 of those who go on to ESRD within the five years of the ACCORD follow-up. Frame two, we thought that those 82 or 84 that progressed um, were quite rapid, so we're gonna use, uh, utilize the, the sequential sampling of biomarkers that they had and look at the change of biomarkers from baseline to 24 months, picks up these fast progressors. And then after we pick, uh, we choose the five best uh, biomarkers um, based on our analyses for that nested case control. We wanna go back and look whether glycemic control did impact upon some of these biomarkers. So now we're gonna take a, a sampling from from each arm of the, of the trial and look whether the intensive glycemic control resulted in a change from baseline to 24 months in these biomarkers. With the argument, and I, I have to admit, this is, com- it was complete, uh, hand-waving and, and tipping my hand to what they wanted to see for the, for the application, it, it, giving some hope, because I mentioned this in negative trials, so potentially seeing that the, these markers were influenced by glycemic control, indicating that the duration of therapy was not sufficiently long to, to witness the differences in CKD and the USRT between the groups. Because some of you may argue, well, type 1 diabetes, it took 24 years now with follow-up from the DCCT, published in New England Journal now, Three years ago, but it took 20 year 24 years of follow-up to show that uh, glycemic control in type 1 diabetes resulted in, in, in some statistically significant benefit for um, CKD in type 1. So uh, that's a very long time, though, and, and even though we may show this, it's, it's going to be hard to justify without the macrovascular uh, benefit and the hypoglycemic risk. But um, I think they, they really want to utilize those samples, and uh, this was a nephrocentric type of application, so we're, we're going with it. And we'll see what we get. At the very least, I think we'll get more understanding of what uh, biomarkers predict uh, diabetic nephropathy progression. and Hopefully, we can use those biomarkers, like the TNF receptor one, in future trials, which I'm going to talk about in a second. So, we need to find studies, we need to do studies to find better predictors, which we're doing with this accord post hoc analysis with the biomarkers. And then, we need to take these biomarkers and perform new trials to hopefully benefit our patients. But the agent, of course, is in question. Um, Bardoxim, I'm gonna show you the data on that in a, in a little bit still. So, this was another R01 application that's gonna be reviewed in about three weeks at the NIDDK, um, and I'm gonna call it drug X right now so you guys don't uh, have any preconceived notions. This is an agent, I shouldn't even call it a drug, um, that has pluripotent properties and reduces um, fibrosis, inflammation, reactive oxygen species. This is a nice cartoon, but let me just show you some actual data. Um, this is oxidative stress markers and, 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 uh, and um, antioxidants. You can see the three antioxidants all improve when uh, this agent is added to uh, uh induced diabetes in, in these mice, in these rats, sorry, <coughs> to my rodents. And, uh, and, and this oxidative stress heart marker mal- malinaldehyde, goes down. Um, it, it reduces protein k- k- kinase C um, activity, which is very important in diabetic nephropathy progression. Reduces VEGF, con- connective tissue growth factor, decreases TGF-beta and osteopontin. These are all pro-fibrotic uh, uh, molecules. Um, and when they've looked at the tissue, it reduces glomerulosclerosis sclerosis and interstitial fibrosis, when when um, when this agent is added to to diabetic rats and um, and, and improves kidney function, um, drug X uh, you can see the creatinine is near is 0.36, which is close to normal, and, and compared to 1.43 in the diabetic rats. Uh, so improving structure and function, and and reduces proteinuria significantly. Again, another study showing reduced interstitial fibrosis, and um, and also improved increased translocation of Nrf2, which is a cytoprotective factor in the kidney. Um, so, what is this agent? It's actually cucurmin. <laughs> so this is. It comes from the turmeric, um, the curcuma longa plant that produces turmeric. It's curry powder. It's what the people use in curry powder. It, it has, it's been studied widely actually in oncology. Uh, very anti-inflammatory, anti-fibrotic, cytoprotective, also improves um, glycemic control. By the way, all the reds are showing up as the screen.
2: Yeah,
1: what's going on with that? I don't know. It's okay on that screen. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this is a bright yellow one, if you guys look over there, orange almost. Um, yeah, MD Anderson has multiple trials looking at it in, in, in various uh, cancers and showing, showing benefit. So I created, this was one of the schematics I created for the grant showing how Cucurbin acts at various levels that are involved with pathogenesis of, of progressive diabetic kidney disease. You've got hypertension here on the left, hyperglycemia on the right, advanced glycation end products. Cochermin blocks you know, these react- reactive oxygen species, inhibits NF-kappa-beta, which uh, elaborates a host of pro-inflammatory cytokines, uh, blocks TGF-beta, and hopefully all this blockade will reduce proteinuria and tubular interstitial fibrosis. Um, there are three pilot studies in patients with clinical disease. They're all smaller than 40 patients. This was the one in type two diabetes. The other one was uh, lupus nephritis. And there was a post-kidney transplant trial of Kukurmin. You can see proteinuria came down significantly with addition of cocurmin, And so did uh, TGF-beta levels. The, the, the uh, interesting thing about cocurmin is um, it has poor systemic bioavailability. It's because it's not soluble in water. But uh, this Japanese company TheraValues has created this nanoparticle encapsulated form, which improves absorption by 27-fold. Um, and uh, TheraValues has, if we get funded, has agreed to uh, provide both the uh, nanoparticle curcumin and matching placebo capsules. And our collaborator, Mick Gard, who's worked on multiple biomarker studies in, in cardiac surgery and other uh, aspects with our, with our group, He's been, he has an active trial that's going for 2,000 patients. They've enrolled 455 uh, randomized to nanoparticle curcumin pre and post surgery and there's been no adverse events reported by their DSMB. Um, the efficacy is yet to be seen, but um, we shall see. So this is the study design submitted for, for the grant, 250 patients with diabetic kidney disease, both at Yale and London Health Sciences Center, where Dr. McGarg is, um, who have uh, macroalbuminuria, uh, Randomize them to 90 milligrams of this agent and with 12 month follow up, and we're gonna do a triple co-primary endpoint of albuminuria, change in EGFR, and change in one of the injury biomarkers, urinary ILA team uh, with multiple secondary outcomes. I'm gonna show you the rationale for the primary outcomes in a second. Now my dream trial would have been also to add in this TNF receptor one to improve our potential to, we wanna enroll the progressors. Um, The problem is it's gonna then, because you have to be in the fourth quartile to show the risk. There's gonna be a, a much higher screening and enrollment rate and screen failure rate essentially uh, because uh, two, uh, three quarters of those patients are gonna to have to be um, dropped out of the study after we measure the initial TNF-perceptor one. So right now it's not feasible in terms of cost to get that funded. Um, it would have to be uh, somewhere where this is gonna become either routine measurement or their banking samples Already, and we can measure them before enrollment. Um, th- this is why I'm saying. If, of course, you remember this. I just showed it five minutes ago. But uh, it would be cool just to enroll these patients who are going to progress. You, what, enrolling these patients would. You're not going to show an effect whether or not you had the best drug or not because they just don't progress. So the triple co-primary outcome. I, I. I tried to talk about the innovation about this in the grant. You know, I, I railed on albuminuria. But you pretty much can't do a trial without it because it's been around for so long. So we have to do it because it's been the standard clinical endpoint for phase two trials. But I, I mentioned the cons in the grant application. We had the multiple dissociation that I showed you with on target altitude nephron D, so it shouldn't be the lone biomarker because we could see a reduction but not see the improvement in the other endpoints, correct? And I showed you convincing data that it's the tubular and not necessarily the glomerular lesion that determines your ultimate fate. The GFR outcome, of course, that is, you know, how you define progression of kidney function. Um, cocurmin doesn't affect any extra renal uh, handling of creatinine, by the way, or the generation. But in general, the decline in GFR is gonna be a late event and the early direction could be opposite. Now let me, finally, I'm gonna show you here this Bardoxalin trial, which was supposed to be the next coming of the great agent to treat patients. This was published in New England Journal in 2013. They got an initial improvement in GFR, so if you looked at just GFR, you'd say, well, it's a great drug, but of course, what happened with the primary composite endpoint, which included cardiovascular and renal events, again, as pretty much everything has gone lately, completely overlapping cumulative incidence curves here instead of survival curves, but absolutely no benefit, and there was an increased risk of heart failure, so this drug is is done. And another thing, here's the here's a postdoc analysis of Renal. I'm trying to show you why you just can't trust the early decline in GFR. If you had an initial reduction in GFR, here you see the biggest decline, they declined by 8.6 versus 2.4 versus went up. There was a difference in the early reduction versus the long-term GFR. If you went down the most early on, you 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 had the low the slowest progression. So it's like this two-slope model. And we know that. And actually, you want the ACE inhibitor to cause that initial decline in GFR because it showed you reduced interglomerular uh, hypertension. Um, And finally, so the tubular injury, multiple reason why to do this because we're hopefully picking up what's going on in the tubular interstitium. These biomarkers should change more rapidly than the GFR. The problem here is we're in uncharted territory as um, while we've studied them in in several observational studies in AKI and CKD, we don't know what the—they haven't been studied really as endpoints, so we don't know what the effect size was. So we had to back calculate some some presumed effect sizes based upon a reasonable reduction, um, based upon the standard deviation. But just to show you that IL18, the uh, one of the reasons we chose it is in this HIV, uh, in this cohort from Mike Schlippak and colleagues. In both HIV positive and negative women that he measured in this chronic setting, IL-18 was one of the stronger predictors of GFR decline over time, compared to some of our other markers we were measuring like Kim1 and NGAL. Um, It's not green, it's bright orange, (laughs) the placebo. Um, Those are the matching capsules. And we're gonna also uh, do some uh, HPLC and mass spec to make sure, there's, there's uh, hepatic clearance and renal clearance of crocetin, so we'll see what's happening to the pharmacokinetics of not only cocurmin but its active metabolites um, if we get funded for the trial to see to see what's going on. But um, ultimately, our, our interest is not the PK but the pharmacodynamic effects and improving uh, kidney function. So, uh, I, you know, diabetic nephropathy is a major public health problem. I think that doesn't take uh, any convincing. Um, Current treatments for diabetic nephropathy provide inadequate efficacy to slow progression of this, this syndrome. Uh, we need biomarkers to improve risk stratification. And we're doing this multi-marker assessment in the accord uh, samples right now. And, and we clearly need more therapies. And I, I'm not wed to, to, to nanoparticle curve, and I mean, I just think that if you look at the basic science data, it's, it's as good as you'd see for uh, ex- data on, on RAS inhibition, uh, or it, it even better preliminary data that they had for bardoxalone, which they went ahead and did that huge multi-million dollar trial. So, at least it's safe. I don't think we're gonna cause any safety concerns, especially with um, a mid-study where he's had all those enrollments and no problems. And it has a chance to be effective. Um, so we'll see, uh, hopefully, i get my score soon and we'll see, we'll see what happens.
2: Um. Martians.
1: This is our our translational research group. I have to paste in a few people who joined uh, (laughs) (laughs) since the the Tribe AKI Consortium where we did multiple uh, AKI studies, especially in the cardiac surgery setting. So thank you everybody uh, for your attention. (laughs)
0: Thank you for a really great talk, it's nice that he went to Dartmouth Green for most of yeah. these. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, there's plenty of time actually for questions, let me sort of get this started off and I have to some questions I'm just curious, if you had to rank more interventions for patients who are starting to develop diabetic kidney uh, problems, if you took hypertension glycemic control and using an ACE inhibitor, who would you rank more than you as an in terms of
1: effectiveness? Blood pressure control, probably number one. If you, if you, Patients are not protected if you're on an ACE ARB, but their blood pressure is not controlled. It, it, it's not going to cause the, it's not going to result in benefit. You have to get the the, 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 blood pressure down, and then once it's controlled, then you apply the ACE to reduce the interglomerular pressure. Not that you're going to hold it until then. You're going to use it as one of your. I mean, these patients are typically requiring, you know, three, four drugs anyway to control their blood pressure. But that, that is the key. I mean, that's uh, certainly. Yeah, for, for diabetic progression, you want you want the blood pressure control. The glycemic control, I'm not saying to let their hemoglobin A1c go to nine, 10, 11, but also don't drive them down to six because there's there's the trade-offs with that and that's increased risk. So get them in a, in a sweet spot. Get them to seven to eight and, and, um, and, and go there. I think everything in moderation, whatever you're talking about in medicine, right? I and mean, there's been very little where we've been super aggressive and improved any outcomes, especially with all our recent trials. There well, are a couple
0: of words, Jeff has a question. Yeah, so I'm
1: an endocrinologist. And in yeah. the last 50 minutes, you've destroyed most of the clinical pearls.
0: <laughs> <I know. laughs> so there's one last standing I'm curious about. We often say that you know diabetic nephropathy seems to run in families. And I'm wondering, is that true? And has there been any genetic studies or anything there that could be used as predictors?
1: The, yeah, the, gen, the genetic studies, there, there's some that show, um, there's some GWAS studies that have shown there are some genes that increase the albuminuria, that increase the, the phenotype of albuminuria and diabetes. Um, but there, there have not been any large-scale studies that have examined it, but there are a, a handful of these smaller studies that show, yes, there are genetic patterns that influence um, albuminuria. They haven't done it to, to show the difference in, in progression to end-stage renal disease. Um, uh, other than um, APOL1, but that's primarily for um, FSGS, that has been the big gene that's been identified in the last 10 years for progression of, of, of CKD. Uh, Fibilial, um, APOL1 mutations, and that was a New England Journal publication last year, they, pu- they published it off the Crick and they asked cohorts um, showing uh, that has a strong predilection for progression of, of, of chronic kidney disease in the setting of FSGS. But, but specifically for diabetes, we don't have um, a specific gene which, which, which associates strongly with progression at this time. Yeah, so the USRDS data show that the incidence of uh, ESRD secondary to diabetic nephropathy has actually decreased. So now, if it was in the current treatment, uh, why is that either do you, do you eat more curry or, I mean, you, uh, you you're, so you're pointing out that th- those curves did kind of start to come down um, now it's not the curry first of all um, the, the the dietary form of uh, curcumin is it, is not well absorbed so you really need this nanoparticle encapsulation and and the few studies that have been done in the, in India have not shown that they're protected from kidney disease. Of course, they, they have more diabetes and stuff too, which helps, it's a confounder with all that. Um, that little trick down, that trickle down that's happening, I, I'd like to see if it's a continued trend or whether just an aberration in, in, in the data, um, because um, the, the, N, the NHANES data showed uh, increasing uh, prevalence of diabetic nephropathy across, across those time frames. So. Um, If that keeps continuing down, then maybe it's overall better blood pressure control or some combination of, of, you know, glycemic control. You know, the STENO2 trial, which was published around a quarter in advance, was much smaller. Out of the Netherlands, Um, they had this multi-pronged approach, which was common sense. It was glycemic control, blood pressure control, statin, aspirin, and they showed you did decrease. uh, Mortality. This was only 150 patients, unfortunately, and eight years of follow up. But the interesting thing there that the mean achieved hemoglobin A1C and and Steno2 is about 7.5 or 8. And blood pressure was 135, um, 140. So it was again showing everything in moderation when you add it together can get some benefit. But when you're trying to just specifically target one thing very aggressively, those whether it's, it's it's lack of efficacy or the trade-offs you get with the um, off-target effects of whatever you're trying to do, those adverse effects counterbalance the, any benefit you would get. So. Well, just I'll take
0: a question in a second. I, just, I neglected to mention he has no conflicts, and he doesn't have stock in the person <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you if I could get some time. Um, as you know, the epidemiological observational studies have shown a strong correlation between urinary albumin excretion and cardiovascular morbidity as well as renal outcomes. Um, uh, and we've all labored under the outcomes of of the type two and type one diabetic ACE and our studies. Uh, your have your analysis recently has has certainly proved the surrogate outcomes. But I'd like you to just elaborate a little bit more. Do you feel that Looking at the surrogate outcome of albuminuria is
1: of little or any, no value
0: in following patients clinically.
1: Well, no, I'm not saying it's no value. Even in the TNF receptor study, you saw that the, the, while the adjusted hazard ratios were seven for both, the absolute risk was nearly 80% when you added it to albuminuria, and only 30% when there's no albuminuria. So I, I think it is still a decent prognostic marker. To, to, but we need to, add. I think if you get a glomerular marker and a tubular interstitial marker, and then maybe the serum inflammatory marker like TNF, you can have this, a more multi-dimensional approach to look at risk. So just, it's not albumin alone. Now whether, I think people took too much stock, that, that's prognosis, but then the question is, is that surrogate, does intervening on that surrogate improve outcomes, which is the second step for, um, that, and I think people took too much stock, oh, I reduced your albuminuria, then therefore their hard clinical outcomes are gonna be improved. The, the proportion of treatment effect, the attributable benefit from changing that surrogate is not as great as, as we expected. So we shouldn't be um, complacent and say, oh, their albuminuria is down, they are gonna have a, a much better, they're not gonna progress the SRD, because that, that translation is not, as strong, and like I said, combining these biomarkers. You know, HDL has been the most famous surrogate of all. You can have people on the street, what's your good cholesterol, they know it's HDL, you know they know they want it higher, and every, study, we, in an observational study, we look at HDL, one you know, mil- milligram per deciliter change correlates with a like 1% increased risk of cardiovascular disease, right? But look at all the trials now, whether these use torceptibib, niacin, multiple studies of niacin, all these huge trials, 15,000 patient trials that the cardiologists do, and absolutely no benefit, despite market improvements in HDL, no benefit for cardiovascular outcomes. So I think a lot of our surrogates, are actually in question um, and, and we re- it's that two-step process yes, a surrogate can be associated with the outcome useful for prognosis, but then what is the effect of treatment and following the, that, that surrogate and what is its impact on heart outcomes It becomes that complicated thing and and, 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 um, and we don't know the, the uh, answer, but it's made things uh, definitely more complicated.
2: So, so typically, we don't biopsy these patients who are progressing to right. renal disease. And now that we're knowing a lot more about this, uh, is it possible that this is not really one disease, but this is these are multiple diseases that may be prevalent in different groups of patients, and that's why you get biomarkers that are different from one group to the other?
1: Yeah, you know, I I, I often I think I tried calling it a syndrome at one point um, because it's not a disease. It's this it's this multifactorial syndrome. And, and you know, in type 2 diabetes, especially, it's 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 the insulin resistance, it's the hypertension, it's the it's it's so many factors that are going on, and it's not. Um, and clearly, the few biopsy studies that have been done show this this mixed pattern. Um, and, and that's what we're trying to do is try to dissect out these phenotypes better. Um, and that's step one. Again, you have, once then we find these different phenotypes, is two then are they going to respond differently to therapy? So it's this, it's this two-step process, but yeah, we typically don't biopsy them enough, and I and we should. I mean, because I think we'll uncover a lot of things when we often it's selection bias. Of course, we see so many cases in our CPCS locally where we present a diabetic that was biopsied, and you know initially probably you know differential is diabetic nephropathy, but you find other lesions or or these you know tubular interstitial things that are going on. Um, but we don't. It's it's years away from how can we best predict it with non-invasive measures, and then how can we best treat them so they don't progress? I mean, that's, that's gonna take take a, take a whole host of further research.
2: Two questions. Yeah. The first question is the TNF receptor that you're measuring, TFR1, yeah. is that in the urine?
1: No, in the, in the blood. In the blood, so yeah.
2: that's a systemic inflammatory marker,
1: yeah. presumably,
2: And yeah. so CRP has not fallen out of those analyses as well.
1: No, CRP's never done well for our CKD analysis. Even cardiovascular risk, uh, after adjusting for everything else, you don't get that much. Um, I don't think the Johnson group measured CRP there, but. Um, and then the second question was,
2: rather than, uh, I'm really surprised that nobody's just taken uh, a mass spec approach to the urine of rapid progressors versus non-progressors and just and do target generation uh, that way rather yeah. than.
1: No, there there are there have been ongoing uh, proteomic analyses of urine and diabetic nephropathy, and, and um, the thing is that they mostly you know they mostly detect collagen fragments.
2: So that doesn't fit a model, but does that predict outcome? Yeah, well,
1: yeah. it it may. Nobody's then looked at it to, to validate it. If you measure them up front, um, we are going to measure the collagen fragments for the for the cord samples to see, but this has been. Um, it's associated, when they do these proteomic analyses, it's associated with progression, but um, we'll see. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, as a fibrosis and you're these collagen fragments in the urine. But that's what the proteomic analyses are doing. And we have an extra, that we're gonna, all our biomarkers that we're gonna do on the urine, we have 0.5 cc's of blood to run the blood ones, and we have a, two cc's of urine, and we can do all the ones that we're doing for essentially uh, 0.5 cc. So we're gonna have 1.5 cc's left over, and, and we did write in, in the grant that the, if these um, biased, the biased approach where we pre-specified these 13 biomarkers of <coughs> inflammation, fibrosis, et cetera, don't find anything. We will do some proteomic analyses to see what else we can find. But last uh,
2: question was yeah. uh, That was fantastic, by the way. The, Thank you. Um, uh, I'm curious what your thoughts are on uric acid, which is getting more publicity as a marker of progression and also possibly a therapeutic target.
1: So interesting, good question. Yeah, multiple observation studies show association between uric, serum uric acid levels and progression of CKD and cardiovascular events for that matter. Two interesting things. One is that the BMJ published an article last year where they they had um, the genetic data on multiple cohorts and they found when they just looked at the uric acid level and the risk of cardiovascular endpoints, they showed this association. But when they looked at the, the genetic mutations, so this was, um, Essentially, uh, they created a randomization with the genes, and if they if they had these genes, there was no association with cardiovascular disease. And so the whole that whole BMJ analysis um, uh, was essentially saying that this is just a, another surrogate marker and and, and not uh, pathogenic. Um, and then, but the, um, no, the JDRF, Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation is actually funding, I think jointly with the NIH, a large trial of allopurinol. To see if that reduces progression of um, diabetic kidney disease. So it is being explored, but again, we need to show that association translates into a, a modifiable um, a target. And so the data is still pending for that, but that, that is a good question.
2: Well, thank you for listening.